good here, isn't it? There's <laughs> nothing more wonderful than being the people of God together, worshipping and praising God. And we're all different. We've all got our quirks and everything else, but we're one in Christ, and how great is that? We're looking at 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning, uh, verses 16 through to 46, and it's another exciting story in the life and times of Elijah. But as we read through this story, we may well find ourselves asking, Elijah, what are you doing? Of all the crazy things that you could do, this surely has to be the worst. Why have you set up this great trial, this great test? It's sheer madness. But we have to ask, is it actual madness? There are a number of questions we're going to be looking at as we go through uh, these verses together. Uh, The first is very simply this. Okay, so what's behind all of this? What's behind this great test, this trial that we read about here in 1 Kings chapter 18? And I'd better just say, we're talking about Mount Carmel, if it's not quite obvious yet because we haven't read anything, but we will. Uh, So it's, it's about the amazing story on Mount Carmel. Elijah's living very much in a land of idolatry. He's living amongst people who, for the most part, have turned their back on God. At best, they're only giving him lip service, and instead of that, they've turned to worshipping Baals and Asherah, and it's a very difficult situation. And there's a challenging question as a result of this that it seems Elijah wants to ask these people. Verse 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If it's Baal, then follow him. That seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? How many of us try and have a foot in two camps? I was going to say two feet in one camp, but you know what I mean. It's, it's not easy, is it? And here are these people. They're, they're following uh, the gods of Baal and Asherah, but still trying to give a little bit of lip service to Almighty God. How significant that the Bible tells us the people said nothing. They understood exactly what it was that Elijah was saying to them. They understood that he'd sussed them out, as it were, very much, very clearly. They're sitting on the fence. They're hedging their bets. And this trial is all about bringing Israel back to the covenant-keeping God whom they have rejected. That's what's behind this trial, that God's people might be brought back to their God. How does the trial come about? Well, God tells Elijah he needs to go to, uh, to Ahab. That's not an easy thing. We've already discovered, haven't we, how it is that uh, Elijah is public enemy number one as far as King Ahab is concerned. They don't get on very well, to say the least. Uh, Elijah is a thorn in the flesh of Ahab and of his government, very much so. But he's been told by God, you need to go and meet with Ahab. And the way this comes about is through that faithful servant of God we learned so much about last week, Obadiah. Obadiah is in charge of Ahab's palace. He's a devout follower of the Lord. And on this particular occasion, he's out looking for grass to pasture the animals. Because remember, there's been three and a half years of drought and of no water. And on the course of this recce, he comes across Elijah. And Elijah says to Obadiah, Obadiah said, I want you to arrange for me to meet Ahab. I need to go and meet Ahab. And Obadiah, he's uh, not very impressed with this because he has this thought in his mind. If I go to Ahab 
and say that I've come across Elijah, and everybody's been looking for Elijah, and then I say that in actual fact Elijah wants to meet with you, and then Ahab takes me at my word and comes with me to meet you, and in the meantime God has said to you, um, I want you to go somewhere else, and you're not there, then I've had it. Are you with me? Have you got that? <laughs> it's no good if that happens. And uh, Elijah understands Obadiah and what he's saying and what he's going through. And so he simply says to him, verse 15, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve and before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to Ahab today. And so Obadiah is uh, okay about that. And he goes off to Ahab and Ahab and Elijah meet. And you have to say it's a rather confrontational meeting. Verses 17 through to 19, the very moment that Ahab saw Elijah, he said, so it's you, you old troublemaker. Poor old Elijah. And then Elijah responds, doesn't he? It's not I who's caused trouble, in Israel said, says Elijah, but it's you. Now you can imagine, can't you? We've just been celebrating the coronation of our king. And imagine the king comes to any of us today and he says, hey you, you're a bit of a troublemaker, aren't you? And uh, I guess our response might be, Your Majesty, I am so sorry. Please help me to be better. I want to be better. I don't want to offend you. The king has come to Elijah. He said, You troublemaker, you. And Elijah turns around and says, It's not me. It's you. Would you dare say that to King Charles? He says it to King Ahab without any hesitation. You're the one that's the stirrer up. You're the one who's caused trouble. And the reason is that you and your government have dumped God's ways and ignored God's commands. You've run off after the local gods of Baal and of Asherah. And then he goes even further. If you think that's bold enough, look what he carries on to say. This is what I want you to do. <laughs> do you imagine going up to King Charles and saying, listen, what I want you to do is... <sighs> Imagine that. I want you to make sure that everybody gathers together on a place called Mount Carmel. Will you make sure that those special pets of Jezebel, you know those 450 prophets of Baal that regularly eat at her table, along with the 400 uh, prophets of Asherah, make sure that they're there as well, that everybody's there. Meet me on Mount Carmel. Carmel's name literally means garden land or a fruitful land. And Carmel itself was a range of mountains from the Mediterranean down to Dothan. Mount Carmel itself was the main ridge, and it ran about 19 kilometers northwest. Densely vegetative, not very well inhabited, and Elijah says, that's where we're going. That's where we need to meet. And so the trial, the test, is arranged. Then we discover in these verses that the trial is explained. It might seem on the surface that the odds aren't very fair. You've got one versus 450 with another 400 supporting the 450. You've got a whole crowd that are, don't know where they are, but are quite happy to go either way. Um, but actually, it isn't quite that bad. In fact, it's incredibly good because with Elijah, there's one other. That's God. And with God, everything is possible. That's what Scripture says, doesn't it? All things are possible. So God and Elijah, or Elijah and God, 
is far more powerful, far more able to do whatever is needed to be done than 450 plus 400 other prophets who worship some false god. So Elijah says, okay, we're here. This is what's going to happen, verses 22 through to 24. Elijah says, I'm the only prophet of God left in Israel. There are 450 prophets of Baal. Let the Baal prophets bring up two oxen. Let them pick one, butcher it, lay it down on the altar and upon the firewood, but don't ignite it. Don't set it on fire. And then Elijah says, I will take the other ox and I will prepare it and I will put it on the altar and lay it on the wood, but I won't light it with fire either. You pray to your gods, I'll pray to God, and the God who answers with fire will prove to be, in fact, God. Seems fair enough, doesn't it? Well, what a challenge. <laughs> Would you like to put, dare I say, even our God to that kind of test? God, here I am. I'm out on a limb for you. You've got to come through. And I'll tell you what, God will come through. All the people agreed this is a good plan. Let's do it. The God who answers by fire, he is God. No fire lighters, no lightning strikes, no matches, nothing else. But the God who answers by fire, he is God. And everybody thinks that's a great idea, great plan, good test. So we discover the trial begins. And it begins, first of all, with the prophets of Baal. I think one of the reasons probably why, uh, why they go first is that uh, the prophets are very many of them. But also, I think, maybe in Elijah's thinking is they're going to need an awful lot of time to try and get fire from their gods. I'll only need a quick prayer. But they're going to need so much time, so off you go. Make the most of it. See what you can do. Let's see if you can get some fire down from your God. And they shouted, these dear prophets. They prayed. They yelled. They danced. They sang. They fell down. They did the old line dancing and the square bashing and goodness knows what else. But all to no avail. There was no fire. A midday comes, verse 27. They've probably been uh, engaged in trying to call on their God for three hours or more. Not even a single twig has started yet to smoke. And some of the older prophets, I'm sure they're getting pretty tired by now. So Elijah gently encourages them. <laughs> he blesses, bless him, he blesses them in a sense. He encourages them and... He's just having a wonderful time, is Elijah. Come on, you prophets. It's almost as if he's saying, reading between the lines, is this the very best that you can do? Why don't you shout a little bit louder? Maybe your God is in a deep sleep and he needs to be woken up. Perhaps he hasn't heard you yet. Maybe he's very busy and he's occupied with something and he needs you to shout long, uh, louder so that you can grab his attention. Maybe he's on a journey and not yet got the message that you are sending to him that you want him to send some fire down. Come on, people, is this the best you can really do? Can I put it to you that here is the greatest put-down of pagan gods found in all the scriptures? Might be in every piece of literature as well. I don't know about that, but how amazing this is. You see, it's sheer folly. It's utter nonsense. It's so weak, it's such an impossibility for these people, these prophets, to, to shout and cavort and do what they did before their God and expect their God to bring fire. But the prophets, at uh, Elijah's gentle persuasion, mockery actually, 
struggle back to their feet. And they bang their drums and they clash their cymbals and they give themselves over to some pretty extreme rituals, including flaying and cutting themselves so that blood flows down their face and down their body. They cavorted and shrieked. They get themselves into a right old frenzy. We might say, here was the full works. Don't underestimate what they did to try and get their gods to send the fire down. I mean, they, they were earnest. I mean, a lot of people would give up. We give up sometimes, don't we, quite quickly. But they carried on, at least, we imagine, for six hours. And uh, nothing happens. They come to the end of their resources, to all that they're doing, and they haven't got a single result at all. Nothing. And we do well just to pause for a moment, if we may, to consider this, that are there not times in your life and in mine when we are brought to the end of our own strength, our own ability, where we can't do anything more. We've tried, we've done our best, we've worked hard at it, but we're exhausted. We've reached the end of our strength, the end of our resources, and nothing, we're not making progress, we're not moving forward in whatever it may be in our life and in our circumstances and situation. And that's the time when God wants to come in and He wants to say, why don't you trust me? Why don't you look to me? See what I can do. Because, you know, this is exactly what's going to happen here in our story. When these prophets come to the end of their tether and there's nothing more they can do and their God can't answer, now it's time for Almighty God to step in and to answer. And so Elijah says here in verse 30, come here to me, gather round. You kind of picture that, don't you, when somebody says, come here, let's gather around. It's sort of like a, a hug at the beginning of a football match or something, or halfway down. What are we going to do? We're 5-0 down, and there's a holy huddle to try and kind of sort it all out. It's not like that, but come gather around. Thousands of you. <laughs> it's my turn. And with all of his mocky, mockery, and uh, I do think there is a time sometimes for godly mockery, don't you? exposing how absurd the worship of false gods and idols really is. See, Elijah knows that these false gods will never respond. They have no ears whatsoever to hear their cry, the cry of the false prophets. They have no voice to be able to understand. They have no arms or legs or limbs or any means whereby they might actually take action and do something. But by contrast... Elijah, he knows that his God, the true God, the living God, Jehovah, will answer. He's got great confidence in his God to show his power. He's been put to the test. His name is at stake, if you will. And I've got a sense, dear brothers and sisters, this morning that we should see more of the power of God in our lives, in our church, and I say it carefully because it's, it's not always easy to say this, is it? But if we put God to the test, <laughs> if we were reached that point where we were able to say, Lord, I've read in your word this. I believe your word. I trust your, Lord, your word. What you say is true. I know something about you. So therefore, I am, and we're going to do something. <laughs> and I have a sense that God says, for at last, <laughs> Someone's trusting me. Someone's taking my word at its face value. A bit like Elijah does here. Lord, you've got to come through here. I said, sure thing, Elijah, no problem. And I have a sense God might well 
do exactly the same with you and me if we were to put him in that sense more to the test. So the trial continues now with Elijah. He does three things. The first two of them are uh, very difficult for the Israelites. In fact, we could go so far as to say these first two things are somewhat scandalous. The first thing he does is he builds an altar with 12 stones. Put it to you, this is offensive to Israel. He rebuilds this altar, you see. He puts the 12 stones on. He names each one after a tribe of Israel. And he goes through the whole list. You can perhaps hear him doing it. Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, Dan, Zebulun, Naphtali, and a few others I forget. And then he adds two more, the 11th and 12th, Judah, Benjamin, 12 tribes, right? But I don't think Israel were too happy about that. My mum used to say to me many, many years ago, Graham, you've now got a wild imagination. And I, I kind of imagine that scene. I think one of the things we want to do when I get to glory, so many things we want to do when we get to glory, aren't there? So many people we want to ask things about. And I want to ask Elijah, Elijah, I've read your story on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, but could you fill us in a bit more? Could you tell us more about it? And it would be an exciting and thrilling and amazing thing. He puts 12 stones on an altar, and the crowd gasp, Elijah, you can't be serious. These are the tribes, these last two, of the southern kingdom. We're the northern kingdom. We don't want anything to do with Judah and Benjamin, tribes of the southern kingdom. At times, these two groups were virtually enemies, yet before God, they should be one people. And that's the point. Elijah's action is very deliberate. He is calling the whole people back to the God of their fathers. To the God who in the very first place had given them a destiny and a purpose and a meaning as one united people. And praise God, the day is coming when the whole kingdom of Christ, the churches across the world with all their different ideas and views and understandings and theologies and all the rest of it are going to be united together as one, as God intended. So, 12 stones are built because there's one people, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, even if they didn't like it. Then the second thing we discover is this, Elijah digs a trench. And he sends some people off to get four big pots of water, and they come back with their water, and they pour it all over uh, the sacrifice that he's prepared with his ox and with the wood and all the rest of it. And the water trickles down, and it starts to fill up the trench. So Elijah says, I need four more, please. He goes and gets four more. And for the third time, Four more great jars of water are bought and poured over this sacrifice. And we read in the scripture that the water pours down and it fills up the trench that Elijah has taken time to build all the way round that sacrifice. And this is the second scandalous thing. What's been going on in Israel? Three and a half years of drought. I put it to you that the people hadn't seen so much water for a jolly long time. <laughs> That's the truth of it. Elijah, how could you waste all of this water? Don't you realize we're in the middle of a drought? Water's like gold. It's precious. But you see, Elijah can do this because he knows something of what God is going to do. And what God is going to do is to send some rain. <laughs> Even before the day is over. 
There's going to be such a torrential downpour, downpour that, that, that this little drop of water or this water will be, by comparison, but a little drop. He knows what God is going to do. But for the people, what are you up to? What an amazing thing to consider, maybe a home group question. How can we know more in our lives, in our church, of what God is actually doing and wanting to do? Are there things that we can put in place in our life and in our fellowship which will help us to ascertain more and more God's will so that we can then go out with more confidence, with greater faith, and prove Him faithful and true to His Word and to His promises? Third thing he does, of course, and here we are at the great climax of this fabulous story. He prays to God to show his power and his authority. Look at verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. need to remember that phrase. All this that happens is at the command of the Lord. When it comes to our trials and our testings, we need to remember that. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. It's not about Elijah, actually. <laughs> answer me so that people will see I'm a great prophet. No. Answer me, O Lord, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. How amazing is that? Praise to God. No, no jumping around, no hollering, no dancing, but simply calling out in faithful prayer, believing prayer, trusting in his God to hear and answer. And so we move towards the trial's end. Verses 38 and 39, quite simply, having prayed, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. The fire fell. How amazing. How wonderful. And there can be absolutely no doubt as to where that fire came from. I find it staggering at times, the amazing ways in which people can come up with to try and uh, explain away something that God in his power and in his authority has actually done because they don't actually want to recognize that it was from God. Don't be ever tempted to do that. If God has spoken, if God has done something, acknowledge that it's God that has spoken and God has done it and praise him for it. I heard people say, I've read of people who say, it was a strike of lightning that hit this sacrifice. I mean, you must think, we're stupid. There's been three and a half years without a cloud in the sky. Where's that going to come from? Or that maybe Elijah took some secret firelighter and stuck it underneath his kindling. And while he was praying, and I don't suppose everybody had their eyes shut, but, you know, while he was praying, that's, that's what happened. Of course it wasn't. The fire fell in result and in response to the prayer of Elijah, and it came from above. And it was powerful, and it was magnificent. The Bible tells us that it scorched the earth all around, that it burnt up the stones, that it evaporated all of the water that was in those trenches that had been poured over that sacrifice. It was amazing. 
And we suppose, therefore, that this was instant, and therefore we understand that the people's response is pretty obvious in what it should be, verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. The word's prostrate, okay. <laughs> the fire fell, God answered, the people recognize he is God. Uh, to finish off the story very briefly, the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. The rain so long absent pours down to refresh the land, and that too so very, very much and obviously is clearly the hand of God upon that situation. It's got his stamp on it. Jezebel hears what's happened. Of course she does. Word gets back. You've got no more prophets left. What? Who's responsible for this? Elijah. And we find the next chapter, Elijah's off in Horeb, and he's hiding in a cave. But that's next week's exciting adventure in the life and times of Elijah. Don't miss it. For ourselves today, simply understand the trial has taken place. Elijah has won. The victory belongs to our God. And so we have to consider as we uh, bring this great, great story to an end, what about our trials? Five simple things to say. Number one, first of all, we have them, don't we? Is there anybody here who's never had a trial or never gone through a test or never struggled in some way or another? Uh, we live in testing times uh, across the land, don't we? Politically, economically, we, our world is, is in a, a right mess of all the war, wars and rumors of wars and so on and so forth. It's a testing time. And we will have troubles and struggles. Being a Christian does not make us immune from going through these times of testing. In fact, at times, I guess it might feel that we might have even more than other people. <laughs> David knew something of this, didn't he? Do you remember in the Psalms how that often he cries out to God? He says, why is it that the, the unrighteous seem to be faring so much better than me when I'm trying to serve you, Lord, do the best, keep your commands, speak your word, obey you? Look at them. They're better off than I am. Do you ever feel like that? We have trouble, troubles, we have struggles. There's a spiritual battle going on in our life often. In fact, may I suggest that if life is too easy, it's too easy. <laughs> it's when we're walking close with God, it's when we have a desire to serve God that we will engage more and more and find ourselves being engaged more and more in a spiritual warfare with the great enemy of our souls, even Satan himself. Don't be surprised. Jesus said, in this world you will have trials and troubles and struggles of many kinds. But take heart. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. And we'll celebrate that around the Lord's table in a moment. Jesus said, we don't need to worry. This test, as we've said, was very much at the command of God and so often some of those tests that we go through may well be the way in which God is trying to grab our attention. James says, consider it pure, totally joyful, brothers and sisters, when you face or are enveloped by trials and struggles of many kinds. That is not exactly the easiest verse in Scripture, is it? In fact, some people think it's one of the hardest, and they're probably right. Consider it pure joy. Be wonderfully happy when you're struggling, when you're going through tests, when you're going through trials, 
when your life is hard, when you're reaching the end of your tether. Consider it pure joy. James, are you serious? Listen, trials, according to James, are a testing of our faith that produces and develops wonderful traits of Christian character in each of us, such as endurance, such as patience, such as maturity. It ought to call us to want to call on our God even more and more. So maybe we should consider, like on Mount Carmel, in this test, in this trial, God was in it. And maybe you don't see it at the time, but he might well be in your situation right now. That's the first thing to understand about our trials, why we do have them. Number two, do you realize we can make our trials more difficult? We can do it by having unrealistic thoughts about our trials and our tribulations. There is a propensity in our nature sometimes to want to exaggerate, don't you think? (laughs) Anybody guilty of exaggeration? No, just me. And this is what happens sometimes, isn't it? We build things up to such an extent that, they, that they're so huge. But the reality is they're pretty tiny. I love going to the dentist. Not. And I can build myself up into a right old stupor. You laugh, but it's true. And so are some of you. It's like that, isn't it? Oh, it's going to hurt. Pauline says to me, it's not going to hurt these days. They've got things called anesthetic. Oh, okay. But then I worry and I imagine, I think he's going to pull that tooth out. He's going to feel that feeling. It's going to hurt. I don't want to go. And you come back and you think, what was that all about? It was okay. Still don't like the dentist, but it was okay. We can make things more difficult, can't we? Those situations we're in, we can exaggerate them. We can make them more difficult by seeking always and only to overcome them in our own strength trying to work out the best we can how to resolve them rather than trusting in our God Almighty. Do we not remember how it is that the Lord invites us to lay our burdens at his feet, to cast all our cares and all our anxieties before him? It's not because he needs us to do that. It's not because he needs his his ego scratched. The Bible tells us it's because he's God and he cares for every single one of us. He wants us to cast our burdens and our anxieties at his feet. We can seek the advice of others and there's not necessarily wrong with that, is there? But we're sometimes very slow to go to God. We have trials. We can make them more difficult. Number three, what might some of our trials and struggles be? It's not for me to say what yours is, but may I just carefully lay before you one or two things that maybe just touch someone this morning. What is your worry? What is your battle right now? Is there somebody here this morning and says, do you know what, I can't cope much longer. Will you permit me just a brief word of testimony? One of the reasons Pauline and I left France was because I got a sister that can't cope. She used to ring us up. And she said, Graham, I wish you lived a bit nearer. She starts crying. The old heartstrings tug, don't they? Here are we sitting back enjoying ourselves. She's nearly 70. She's got full responsibility of three grandchildren. 
Two of them have particular needs that are hard to meet. She's got a daughter that is almost like a fourth child. Life is tough beyond tough. And time and time again, she says, Greg, I can't cope. And I understand that. We talk together and we pray and we'll ask God to help. And by His grace, she gets strength for one more day. There's someone here this morning and I can't cope. Life is hard. You don't know what I'm going through. It's so busy, so difficult. During the last few days or weeks, we've had a number of prayer requests, haven't we, on the prayer chain for our brothers and sisters who who have been really poorly and we've been asked to pray for them. And it's a privilege to pray for one another. God exhorts us to do that. But understand that enduring long periods of difficult health can be a real trial, a real struggle. Maybe there's someone here this morning who's got a relationship problem with a partner, with your kids. And you think, you know, why are your kids so good? Mine are just not like anybody else's that I know of. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. But relationship problems, it's tough, it's hard. How are you going to carry on? Situation at work, maybe, which is a real struggle and a real test. That person is always so obnoxious to you. He's so in your face, he won't give an inch. You're trying your best to meet him more than halfway or her, but it's just not happening. Could the struggle be with some addiction or another? Not just thinking of those things like um, alcohol or drugs or pornography, but those things that we've become addicted to, which maybe in and of themselves might appear to be perfectly innocent. It's okay to enjoy golf, but when you're playing twice every day, every week, I don't suppose anybody could do that, but you know, occupying too much time, and we know it. And it's a struggle because we love it so much. Maybe God is asking some of us to give something up even today. And then there's the daily spiritual struggle that we wrestle with because we're walking with God, because we want more of God. We've got an enemy to contend with. And perhaps one of our spiritual struggles has to do with not hearing God. Lord, I've prayed about this I don't know how many times. And and it seems like you're not hearing me. It seems like you're not listening. I don't have an answer. What am I supposed to do? Why aren't you talking to me? The heavens feel like brass. Or perhaps it isn't so much that we're not hearing God as opposed to having heard God but not liking what God is saying. (laughs) And we're struggling with that as well. Do you really want me to do this, Lord? Spiritual struggles. Resisting temptation from the enemy is difficult at times, but there can be trials and temptations, can't there? So we, we experience trials. We can make them more difficult. We've seen of what sort some of them may be. But here's the important thing. Power to overcome trials. And there's lots of things that we probably said this morning, lots of things that is so easy to forget, but please don't forget this. The great God who powerfully intervened on Mount Carmel, bringing fire down upon a saturated altar, is the same God who lives and exists today. The Bible says with him there is no shadow of turning. And that same God can sure bring his power to bear upon your trial, your situation, your circumstances, right here, right today, and in this place. So that if you've come in with a heavy heart, you can go out with the lightest step you've ever had in years. 
That's what's possible under the power and authority of God and His Word and what He wants to do. God wants us to prove His Word true by acting upon it, by trusting in His power to accomplish His purposes. Can I say it again? To put Him in that place that, that, that Elijah did, where God is duty-bound to defend His name, His honor, or lose that. No fire, no almighty God. No different to Baal and the other gods. So God, you've got to come through. And he did, and he does. Power to overcome trials. What must I do then? Understand, first of all, that God wants to give us the victory over our tests and our trials and the circumstances of life that bog us down so much. He's willing to do that. Are we prepared to allow him to do that? We can do that even this morning, calling upon his name. There's a word that I believe God is wanting us to understand this morning, and it's the word release. We can get involved in a circumstance or in a situation, can't we, whereby we're just so bogged down with it. It, it occupies our time. We know we've got to handle it, but we're not doing it very well at the moment, and it's just weighing down upon us. And then you wake up one morning and say, I've had enough of this. I'm going to sort it out. And you devote your time and your energy to sorting that problem out, whatever it might be, something you've got to fill in, something you've been saying you do for ages and haven't done it, one of those items on the list the wife has given you, whatever it is. And it's just there. And you do it. And what happens when you've done it? I'll tell you what happens. You go, <sighs> yeah. Anybody know that? <sighs> Done. Finished. Over. Released from it. And that's the word God would have us understand and hear from him this morning, I do believe. He wants to bring release and relief to so many of his children here this morning. So that we might be able to say, ah, the trials won't be not saying there won't be any more, but this battle is won. See, our God is powerful, and he's mighty, and he wants us to know and experience the victory. Will you call on him this morning? We invite him to come in and meet with you right where you are, that you might see his power working in your life. Will you cry, Lord, send the fire, <laughs> send your power. Musicians come up and get ready to continue to lead us in worship. Can I invite us just to be still for a few moments and to come together in the fellowship of prayer? Oh, Lord. Lord, will you show your power to us this morning here in this place like you did on Mount Carmel those centuries ago? We have no doubt that you're able to do that because you're the, exactly the same God. And you love your people. You did then, you do now. Thank you, Lord. You loved us so much you sent your son to save us, to redeem us, to buy us back. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for who you are and all that you mean to us. Lord, you know our needs. You know our desires. You know the battles that go on in our heart and in our soul right now, and we pray, gracious Lord, that you would come, that you would intervene, and as 
we're able to lay them before you, Lord, that you would take them up. Help us to trust in you, that we might experience your power, that we might know that relief, that release that we believe you're promising us today. And Lord, I pray right now that you would banish the enemy of our souls from this place. You would banish Satan from our thoughts and from our mind so that nothing but nothing may detract from us hearing your word, being obedient to your word, knowing your richest blessing upon our lives. So come, Lord Jesus, send your power, show your power. Lord, send the fire that we might go forth as the people of old did. This is our God, and we will bow down and we will worship him. For there is no other God but our God. Hear our cry, Lord. Meet us at our need, we pray. Help us to be careful to give to you and you alone all the praise, nor the thanks, nor the glory, because you alone are worthy. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.